up, everybody? It's April Justine, and this is Strictly Shorties, your podcast for blood pythons and short tails, and only blood pythons and short tails. And I am super, super duper excited to be able to bring this to you guys. It has been something that has been in my mind for, gosh, a year since I was doing the other podcast, the Reptile Gumbo podcast. Uh, You might recognize my voice from there. Uh, But when I was doing that, I was like, man, I really just want to talk to these people about short tails. I don't really want to talk about everything else. I just want to talk about short tails. So here I am, and I am super excited to bring you the history of these animals, uh, going deep into the species, going into husbandry and breeding, how to pick the reddest snake, what you're looking for, all that kind of stuff, and talking to the people that know best. Um, so here for episode one, we are going to be talking about the history. Oh, my cat is coming to visit. So if you guys remember from the <laughs> gumbo podcast, my cat always is here. You will hear her again. I apologize, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but we are going to be going over Uh, today, the history of blood pythons and short tails and captivity here in the United States. And the one and only Keith McPeak is here with me. Hello, Keith. How are you? How are you doing, April? Good to see you again. I am fabulous. I am super, super fabulous. Good. And my cat is just going to be uh, (laughs) just coming in. (laughs) I wish you guys could see the video of this. This is ridiculous. Um, Okay. So uh, how are you tonight? I'm doing really well, really well. I know this is round two for us. Um, I know. My that was my end for sure. I'm trying to get a little more tech savvy with these podcasts. And right, uh, little does everyone know that we recorded this already about a week, a week and a half ago. Right. (laughs) And uh, the audio just wasn't working out for us, so here we are again. Yeah, um, this which is, is great. Much better this time. Yes, we can tell just by recording. The sound is way better, so I'm excited. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get started. And um, I know right now you don't really work with the short tails and the blood pythons so much. But when did you start with blood pythons? And you know, uh, about how long have you were you working with them? So I had blood pythons, um, since the eighties. Um, but I really started getting heavy into the blood pythons, um, probably in the early to mid nineties. Um, but you know, back in the day, people had eclectic collections, you know, nowadays, a lot of people specialize, but I do see a lot of the hobby going back to, um, um, having more of just one species, but, Back then, everybody wanted to have a pair of this, pair of that, pair of this, pair of that. So, you know, I always had a couple blood pythons and working with them, and and they were just a species, you know, that weren't really established yet in a hobby. And just this short, fat, you know, a lot of snake in a small package, as I always say, um, which is just super intriguing to me. And the thought of seeing those little heads coming out of eggs one day, you know, was just, you know, insane for me. So... Um, I'd say in the mid nineties is when I started really just, you know, weeding the other stuff out and realizing that the more I concentrated with one species, the more, um, successful I was and, you know, the better understanding I had with them, you know? So yeah, it started way back then. So when you got, you know, more serious and, you know, started honing down your collection a bit more, how many species were you working with at that time besides the short tails? Oh, a lot. I mean, I had everything. I had a lot of different dwarf monitors and I had, um, you know, all the species of uh, boa constrictor, Surinams, the Guianas, the Argentines, um, Amarillo. I, I had, um, 
you know, Burmese pythons. I had carpet pythons. I used to do a lot with carpet pythons. I had Sanzinia, I had Dumerals, you know, I had just about anything that was out there at the time that was feasible for me to get, you know, but, uh, believe it or not, like blackheads and womas even were like, you know, way out of reach. And I was lucky enough to get a pair of bowl and I way back in the day at one point. Um, and you know, crocodile monitors and I mean, everything, you know, if you go all the way back to when I was a kid, I mean, I've had caimans, I've had just about everything that's out there, but and that's what everybody did. You know, they, it was more keeping stuff even um, than even starting to breed it. It was just to maintain a big collection of a bunch of stuff, you know? Yeah. So with a lot of that stuff that you guys, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, was most of that stuff wild caught that you had it to? It was all wild caught. So it was all wild caught. How hard was it to, besides the short tails, just the animals that you got in general to establish them when you got them? Well, the, so the sequence back then was, you know, most of the importers were trying to, it, it seemed anyway that importers were trying to bring in big animals and not little animals because that's what collectors wanted. Collectors wanted these big, impressive, you know, animals of any species, but even with the blood python. So um, not too many people were working, you know, trying to breed them back then, but people would be getting gravid females. Again, these things were like super hard to even establish in captivity back in the day. They were super um, nervous, high strung. We didn't really understand why they were like that. We were doing everything wrong the way we were keeping them. We thought they had to be kept super hot and super wet. And, um, you know, and all the things that make these animals high strung is exactly what we're doing because that's what we thought they needed um so it was really just adult blood pythons coming in so that's all you had to work with and they were like i say super high strung i mean like uh you know 20 25 pound animals striking at you off the floor and the whole body coming off the floor and i actually got at you and everything yeah (laughs) you know i can i can remember you know when you're working with the animals, you're picking them up and you're trying not to give them a target. And, you know, I was holding the animal away from me. And this one big female, she came back on me and hit me with the top of her head right below my eye, you know, and it felt Ooh. like I got punched by Tyson, you know, and I was like, wow, <laughs> these things are just insane. You have um, a black eye for that one. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh, and, um, yeah, so they were real tough to work with back then. Like I say, a couple of gravid females would come in from time to time and they'd be quickly scoffed up by Don Hamper and other people, you know, and, you know, you'd get a clutch here and there and the babies were super expensive and, you know, you were lucky to get one if you could get one. But nobody was really breeding them back then. You know, mm-hmm. there was more of that kind of thing going on. Nobody was certainly was specializing in them, you know. Sure, sure. And you mentioned that... um, you know, you were keeping them all the wrong way and doing the things to keep them all high strung. Where do we get that information to begin with that they were supposed to be, you know, wet and humid and, and super hot? Where did that come from? That all came basically from, you know, books. Um, and, you know, again, you have to go back then when information wasn't so readily available like it is today. You know, there was no Internet and all that kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you had a uh, uh, the lucky to get somebody's phone number to call them on the phone. That was fantastic information. But so you read these outdated books that, you know, said that basically they live in these swamps and they're buried in the mud waiting for prey uh, prey to come down to the water's edge to drain. I mean, they kind of built them up to be almost crocodilian, like in their life (laughs) habitats, you know? So everybody thought, you know, you had to keep them really wet. You had to keep them in this thick, muddy, sphagnum moss type 
substrate and mm-hmm. keep their temperatures in the high 80s, low 90s. And, um, and, and plus you're getting a wild animal that's been imprinted its whole life to, you know, being in the wild. And now we're throwing them in these, you know, smaller cages and everything, and they're not adapting too well. And respiratory infections were, you know, the norm with wild coats, not feeding was the norm with wild coats. And they were super hard to establish. I mean, you know, I equate them to how Bull and I were even, you know, how hard they were to, to even get going in captivity, let alone thinking about breeding them, you know? Sure. Yeah. And then, um, oh gosh, I just, you said something that sparked a question. It just totally left me. That's okay. Uh, I'm (laughs) sure we'll come back. Um, so, um, we're keeping them super wet. We're getting, uh, respiratory infections, you know, all the time. Uh, did you, at that time, were there even like people that even specialized, like vets that specialized in reptiles where no. they could help you? Like, what did no. you, what did you do when your animal got sick? Well, when they, you know, we would go to, you know, the best you could do is usually you'd find somebody that maybe dealt with birds because birds were very um, happening back in the eighties. You know, there was a lot of parrots and stuff. So these guys kind of felt like, oh, well, I'm dealing with birds. So that's kind of exotic. So yeah, I'll take a look at your big snake, you know, and you go in with a big blood python. Well, you know, most vets right away, they would look at them one time and they'd set me up with the, the, <laughs> the, the, the needles and the antibiotics and I'd be home, you know, and I'd try to pin them down with a, a blanket and my wife would be trying to give them a shot. Um, and, and, you know, they're bending the needle and breaking the needle off because they're just, you know, and we, I didn't even realize at the time it's, you know, you started seeing the results of it, but the stress of all of that was actually just compounding the problem, you know, just stressing the animals out. Um, so it was definitely a big learning process and, you know, it took, you know, five, six, seven years to start getting a handle on how to, how to keep these guys right. And of course, you know, the further I got into it, um, I was breeding them up till 2013. Um, so, you know, I had roughly 30 years, 25, 30 years experience with, uh, just working with that species, you know? That's awesome. That I can't wait for, I can say that. Like I've been working with them for so long. Um, one of these days I'll get there. Um, uh, I had it again. Oh my gosh. You said something again and it came through and I just lost it again. It will come back because <laughs> it has already. Um, okay, so what did you do, and, and how how was information? Well, first of all, like how many people were even interested in them at the time in the eighties and the nineties? Because here they are coming from the wild, and they sound like they're absolute terrors. So who's who's going to want to work with these animals? Right. So I'd say like in the mid nineties is probably you know I knew the Barkers from when they were up here in um um, the Maryland, Virginia area. And, you know, there was a, you know, you'd see him at Daytona and then you'd see him again at the mid Atlantic reptile show. And, you know, I became friendly with the Barkers and on. And I would say in the mid nineties, um, is when, you know, Tracy started kind of getting a handle on them and, and realizing, you know, the potential there and different animals were coming in through Bushmaster and she had connections to, to get stuff that was being found in the wild. And they started to really take on popularity, I would say in the mid nineties. Um, and at that time, you know, like, again, we didn't have all these forums and Facebook and all these different things. So you could really connect with people. So, Really, besides the Barkers, the only other person I knew that was really working specifically with them was um, Tim Mead. So mm-hmm. it was myself, Tim Mead, and Tracy Barker. And, of course, there was a lot of people out there that had 
a few animals. You know, Mike Kasakis had um, some animals and um, Steve Roos has had some animals. You know, everybody had a couple animals, but to specialize specifically in them, you know, the people that came to mind in my world were myself, Timid, and, and Tracy, you know, um, because quickly they started just getting everything out of my collection and every cage was just filled. And I was growing up, you know, future breeders and having, you know, a bunch of babies all the time on hand for, for sales and all that kind of stuff, you know? So we were the guys you know, like really concentrating on, it. I'm sure there's probably people in California or Florida or something that I didn't know about, but again, it was a, it was a smaller world then. And, um, you know, so I, I really didn't make connections with too too many other people that were specializing specifically in blood pythons. Right. And how often did you even get to really exchange information with other people? Because, you know, we had, you, you have email, phone, the forums, but now you just get on Facebook and you can, you know, search Keith McPeak and you can find him right, right. away. You know, how did, how the, you know. I mean, we share so much information now. Well, so how did that work for you then? Yeah. They, it, once the shows really started taking off, you know, once uh, Orlando was the huge show, you know. So once that took off, I mean, everybody from around the world literally went to that show. And that's where you made your connections and hopefully got your phone numbers, you know. And um, and then, you know, started reaching out to people. But, um, you know. It was the suppliers, really. It was the Tom Crutchfields and the Glades and the, you know, the Bill Love and Kathy Love and um, Gulf Coast Reptiles and, you know, all those different people that you kind of, you know, went to them and tried to pick their brain as much as you could because they wanted to make the sale at the time, you know, so you would pick their brain a little bit. Um, and then, you know, once I connected with Cam from Bushmaster, you know, then then more knowledge started becoming because that, then they started becoming popular enough where, you know, Cam was specializing in them and collecting the gravid females over there and finding the mm -hmm. unusual animals. And the people going in the bush were, you know, realizing that there was different looks that were important for the hobby. So, you know, it, 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 information started to flow a little bit better then, you know, because everybody that was selling those animals now want to get them in your hands. So, you know, information right. started to flow a little better. Then. So I, I have like no experience or education in how importing even works. So at this point, um, you know, do you ask the certain people that are able to get these animals in that you're looking for a certain look? Do you ask them if you see something different, you know, keep it for me? Like how, how does that work? Like how do well, you get all so different back, morphs and everything coming through. So back then, um, it was just how much volume you bought, basically, you know. Um, the, you know, there was the Hudax, who I did get some really outstanding animals from them, but they didn't last very long in the industry. I, I think they got pushed out um, in Indonesia. Their their place got burned down and everything else. So it was a very uh -huh. protected thing over there, you know. And when somebody new came into the hobby, um, they would try squeezing them out and you know, keeping everything to their own over there. So, uh, you know, Tracy obviously had the volume and, and connections to really be probably the first person that any new animal that came across a importer, which was basically cam, mm -hmm. um, anything that, um, you know, came in and to his hands, you know, she'd probably get the first phone call before anybody else, you know, and if she had a lot of projects that she had just gotten started, then, you know, maybe it would filter down to me or, 
or some of the other people, Harlan Wall started getting into it and, you know, different people started getting into it more and more. So, um, yeah, basically it's the volume you buy from those people. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that makes you, uh, one of the connections and, and it was tiered compared to how much you would buy from them, you know? The more you would buy, the more you would spend, the more chances you had to be the, the person to, to get on that, you know, wait list for the cool right. stuff coming in. So, so we have now where, you know, you have something for sale and someone who's interested will ask you for 5,000 pictures and all that kind of thing. Did you have any pictures, anything, or you just say, give me 4.4 and that's what I want? You know, you, how does that you work? Got a, you got a mailed price list to you. Mm-hmm. And when it saw, you saw blood pythons on it, they'd have some kind of really cool little description. Like when I got my first Borneos on Tom, from Tom Crutchfield, they were the newly rediscovered blood python. Oh. Um, <laughs> so from Borneo. So, you know, I called Tom up and, uh, you know, told him I wanted a pair. And I think back then it was like 1200 bucks for the pair. And my wife was like, you better have little diamonds on the sides of those things. Cause that was a lot of money back then, you know? Right. Yeah. It still is. Uh, yeah. And, um, so, uh, yeah, it was just priceless and you, you poked and hoped and, you know, you'd get the animals. And most times, you know, I was pretty happy because I had known most of these guys good enough from buying all the other animals I bought from. So they, they kind of sent me some pretty cool stuff or really nice looking stuff. And that was all my foundation stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Tracy really busted it open once she started getting animals and having a relationship with her. I was able to get in on some of that stuff before anybody else. I would be one of the first people to be able to get some animals from her. So, you know, Tracy definitely is, you know, the one who exploded the whole blood python market without a doubt. I'm very thankful for that lady. <laughs> yeah. yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, we would be nowhere, honestly, if, you know, she really didn't pioneer all of that. So, yeah. Very thankful to to Tracy. Anyone who's listening to this who doesn't know who Tracy Barker is, learn. <laughs> yeah. She's absolutely amazing. Um, and they have the website that has history of all these different projects that they have. There's like three different types of T-negative, which is just crazy. <laughs> she has so right. much going on. And there's so much that we probably don't know. You know, the general public doesn't know that she has going on still. Uh, yeah. So. When I when I visited her way back then, you know, there, there was projects in there. Like I had no idea we're even there, you know, and you're just walking around in awe. And she's like, right. yeah, I haven't Mind had blown. time to start doing anything with that one yet. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You got to start <laughs> this one. And then she'd open another door and you'd be like, oh, never mind. Yeah, you got to work with that one. No, never mind. You got to work with that one. You know? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'd be like, so. I'd be like a kid in a candy store like that. Oh, that's, absolutely. That'd be amazing. Yeah. It's absolutely definitely mind blowing. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's awesome information to know. Cause I definitely was like, how, how does that even work? What, what were even the prices of animals then? Like a normal blood python. What, normal what were the, blood, the so, prices? so, um, normal blood pythons were probably like in the 300 to $400 range wild caughts. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, when they got the gravid females and, uh, you know, the eggs would drop for some of these guys, I mean, babies were like a thousand dollars a piece then. Oh, wow. Um, and, and it, when I first started with them, they were cheaper, but you know, obviously popularity drives the price up. So there was a point when they were like, you know, red blood Python was a thousand bucks. I mean, a nice red blood Python was what you were looking for. There was no albinos. There was no teen eggs, uh, obviously, or team 
uh, minuses or, or, or there was no golden eye or any of that kind of stuff. Just you were looking for really nice red blood pythons with a nice dark mm-hmm. head and maybe nice gold markings, you know, and, and that's what you were breeding for. Um, you know, the morphs really is what busted open uh, the market and making more and more people turn an eye to them and wanting to get involved with them without a doubt, you know. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I remember the question that I kept forgetting <laughs> over and over again. And we were talking about um, their attitude that they had because of how we kept them and we were stressing them out so much. Do you think that is what has um, made the rumor that now, you know, here people come to me even now and say, I thought that blood pythons were really nasty and they were really terrible, you know, are they actually all like that? Da, 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 you know, that type of thing. Do you think that that started because of when we first got them into the United States? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, uh, when you're getting wild caught adults of anything, they're going to be a lot more aggressive because in nature has taught them to defend themselves in order to survive. And secondly, um, they're used to their wild ways and the stress is going to make them, you know, nervous, high strung and, you know, just trying to protect themselves, obviously. So, yeah, and 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 they're an animal that was more uh, capable of defending themselves than a lot of other species. You know, I mean, you know, after working with them, and then I I started getting into Corallus, and I, I was getting you know Hortolinus, uh, you know, Amazon tree boas. And holding one of them in my hand, they're making these little strikes at you. And I'm like, are you serious? That's so cute. You know, <laughs> to a blood python when they're on the all out. But, you know, I was really trying to preach in the early days that it's it's not aggressiveness, it's nervousness. Because once you understand that mm-hmm. it's nervousness and high strung, you approach the animals in different ways. If you try taking a wild caught adult blood python back in the day and just overpowering it like you could so many other pythons by pinning its head down and forcefully, you know, just trying to grab it and restrain it. I mean, a blood python, an adult wild caught blood python would literally do a gator roll and twist its own head off. You know, I mean, they were just so powerful and, you know, you couldn't restrain it. All you did was keep elevating that situation. And once I understood specifically to, to deal with them as if they're nervous, and, you know, and it's my job to, to calm that down and not just force myself on them. Every, the whole game changed then, you know. Mm-hmm. So I started preaching that in the early days that you have to understand that they're nervous. Just understand that they're nervous and deal with them as if they were nervous, you know. And, and that definitely seemed to help a lot of people overcome their fear of them, understanding that. And once you overcome your fear of them, then they overcome their fear of you. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, that was a, a huge thing. Once um, you get to understand that animal can interact with it, they're no longer that big mean snake that everybody was so scared of all the time, you know? Yeah, and that message is still, you know, from then when it started to now, that still is absolutely 100% true. Right. So, And I, I found, too, even when I'm giving, like, uh, injections to some animals that have an RI or something like that, if I pin their head down or hold them too much, like I don't, I don't even hold their head. I don't even. I just grab their body and give the injection, and that's the best. Um, if you pin their head, hold their head, or any, even their body, they'll, you know, they're so strong they can just buck you right off. Oh yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah, and I've had that happen before, and I've I've learned just you know, don't put too much pressure on them because if you hold them down, that's when they get really, really 
not too excited about your presence anymore. <laughs> yeah, a bath towel, a beach towel is even better. You know, if you can, if you can get a towel over them and just kind of, you know, kind of calms them in a way and and just expose a part of the body that you need to work on or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're you're taking off a piece of shed skin and you have a really high strung animal that's not used to you're dealing with them, that's always the way I would approach them with a with a big beach towel and. Um, thankfully though, you know, those days were short lived for me and, and, you know, I got to understand them better and it was a lot easier with just hands on stuff. But if you do need to really work with something and it's really high, strong, a beach towel is the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's get into more of how you overcome the issues at first, you know, with the, the, all the RIs that you saw and, and how they were kept and, and what you did to, to overcome all these issues. Well, so, you know, juvenile animals are keeping them in uh, Tupperwares and, you know, side ventilation and all. And I can remember having a a good friend um, at the time, John Wilborg, who had a big collection of snakes. Also, me and him kind of worked together on a lot of projects. He had come over to the house and, uh, you know, I was going to show him some of the blood pythons that I had gotten in and stuff. And I can remember opening up one bin and and you got this odor. And right away, John's like, you know, that's like a bacterial odor. And he goes, when you got them, you know, so close like that, we start talking and we're like, yeah, you know, you're keeping them so closed up like this. It's just promoting that bacterial growth. And here we are thinking, you know, we're keeping this high humidity that they need and everything else. And just, you know, that one conversation with John saying that back, that smells like bacteria that was it. You know, then it changed the whole game for me. I just started adding and adding and adding ventilation holes on the sides of those things and trying to keep blood pythons, as you know, will take a lot of humidity and a lot of wetness on their skin and not develop the problems that a lot of species will. They seem very resilient to wet conditions compared to a lot of pythons. Mm-hmm. So that makes us think that we were doing the right thing by keeping them really wet. But, right. um, the ventilation, once I started just putting that ventilation in there and then drying them out and testing it and seeing, hey, the RIs actually went away. And, you know, just experimenting with just one simple little comment that a friend of mine made. And and there it was, you know, there was the, the, the big key to the whole thing that really started unlocking a lot of things for me. And with more ventilation, you know, it also allowed a lot of the heat that I was trying to keep on them at the time escape. Um, once I started adding fans into the room that was drawing um you know the air inside of the container out through the holes and everything and and you know conditions with the animals all started to improve then and the mm-hmm. animals started to improve everything started getting better and better so you just keep building on those you know milestones of things that turn out you know better for you that way for sure yeah absolutely i found that ventilation is probably the if I'm going to give any advice to anyone, it is ventilation for these animals. You need to have, like you said, the holes on the side and don't put it, I don't put them high on my enclosures. I put them down lower. So that way there's some cross breeze or cross, I don't know what it's called, but so you get that ventilation and you know, yeah. they pee a lot and that's smelly pee. So you need, you need to clean that up and get that aired out. Yeah. I'm actually writing a book right now and, you know, and blood pythons taught me so much about ventilation in the ventilation chapter. I talk about, you know, keeping some holes low, close to the ground, but obviously not so low that if you spill a water dish, you know, you want to, you want to kind of balance that out and then, (laughs) and then some high ventilation holes because you want that natural convection of, you know, air being drawn in the bottom, expelling from the top 
or vice versa, depending if mm-hmm. you're heating or cooling. And um, yeah, ventilation for blood pythons is huge because as you know, they can hold on to a lot of waste for a long time. And when they do let loose, that ammonia smell is so toxic and it, it really irritates their uh, respiratory system. And, you know, if there's any kind of a bacteria lurking in there or something, they're going to be just susceptible to it right away. Right. That's just going to trigger that instantly almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get the the snuffles and whatnot happening. <laughs> yeah, people today don't realize all the all the things that everybody you know along the way has learned from these guys and making them such a mainstream animal now. You know, it would be unheard of for somebody that didn't have a lot of experience keeping these guys alive. And nowadays, you know, somebody that moves from ball pythons right into blood pythons and they're super successful with them. You know, mm-hmm. thanks to us, so many breeders out there, Nick and Kara and Matt, and you know, well, yeah. You know all the names. <laughs> right. <laughs> just, um, you know, they, they became mainstream, what, in 2000s maybe? Like when did that start? Yeah. When they really I, started to explode. I think I think between 2007 maybe and 2013, that's kind of why I got out of it to be honest with you. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd say around then is when, you know, they really started to take off and um, – you know, became like very desirable, and especially with all the morphs that were coming out and yeah. all the stuff that you're, you know, making double genetics and triple genetics. And, and then it just started really exploding, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and now we just have freaking anything you can imagine almost. That's yeah, how I yeah. feel. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's people, crazy. You know, every, every season now, I'm just like, what? It, it, it's not ball python level by any means, but at the same time, it's like, how many genes can we fit in one animal? This is right. just, this is too much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and starting to track all, I mean, that's a full-time job trying to track all that, you know? Yeah. Especially when people name it something separate. Like, yeah. I don't know. People ask me, what's electrostatic? I don't know anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I'll get right. back to you. <laughs> right. 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 Um, so in the early 2000s, um, when they first came into the hobby, it was thought that they were one species. And you said um, in the last recording that um, you kept them more as localities. Can you explain a little bit more into that? Yeah, I mean, I know once the species, they got all you know separated and everything else that the people new to the hobby used to really frown on us old timers saying blood py- a Borneo blood python or a black blood, <laughs> you know, and stuff. Um, but, you know, it's just like chondro sticks with, you know, green tree pythons and um, so, you know, once that happened, it was, you know, a different ball game, but back in the day, we looked at them as localities and you were trying to breed those animals to look as best they could for that. Uh, you know, if you want to call it a locality. So mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of crossbreeding or anything going on really back then. It was, you know, mainly people wanted the blackest of the, you know, black short tails and, the Borneos, you know, they were looking for trying to get as much contrast because the earliest animals coming in kind of all kind of blended together. So if you got some animals that had good contrast in their patterns and stuff, that's what people were looking for back then and trying to breed that. And the reddest bloods, you know, were always the very desirable blood python. So, um, you know, that's what kind of people were ble- breeding. They wouldn't want to put a Borneo with a b- b- blood because you know you're going to just wash down that red blood and that's what everybody wanted is a red blood python so why would you breed that into it you know right that wouldn't make any sense (laughs) right right 
Yeah. And even, even now when people talk about it, you know, it's like, eh, you could do it, but you're not going to make that attractive of an animal. So why would you do it? Right. You know, you're just going to take away from what, what makes the species, the species. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, I don't know. I'm trying to look through my notes to see what else we talked about last time. So I don't miss something. (laughs) (laughs) Round two, will we make it better or not? (laughs) (laughs) Um, what about uh, going deep into the Borneos and like the lines that that you really worked on and you produced, you know, and and when did those start and how did you even know that something was a line? Like, so, how did that even go? <laughs> yeah. So um, the Borneos, you know, everything there was like a, a line or a trait breeding that I would do. And, and that really intrigued me more than um you know, simple genetic morphs where you just take, you know, two hats and you bring them together and you get the albino or anything like that. That to me, like anybody can do, you know, so I, I just was really drawn to the Borneos and trying to breed for specific looks. Um, and I had gotten in these animals, like I said, from Tom. And when I bred them, I found that, um, you know, some of the babies had these speckled sides a little bit and, unbeknownst to me, I guess maybe Tracy had gotten some of the same stock I did and Tim Mead had, and they started, or maybe Tim got his from Tracy. I I don't really know how that went, but you know, Tracy was working on a project with some animals that were speckled and I was working on mine. And when we went, I think Tracy and I actually bred Borneos. We both were the first people to breed them in captivity. And we both did it on the first year, the same year, I should say. And, um, I actually was looking at an old vivarium magazine the other night and I had an, uh, they finally let you do color ads in the back. And I have a picture of the original marble in the back of that vivarium magazine. I, I was advertising them, sorry to say, as marble <laughs> blood pythons. Oh, um, but, <laughs> you kill some, some people are going to be cringing yes, when they hear that. <laughs> I know. Rob Christian is definitely yep. cursing me out right now. Um, but uh, so, you know, it was 99, 1999 when I was just um, starting to have enough animals that I was going to let out to the public, you know. So I had been working with them, I'm going to say, from like uh, probably 93, 94. Mm-hmm. And then by 99, I was producing animals that, you know, I was going to let go. Um, so, you know, I just tried to breed for intensity then. And then um, I had wound up picking up with Kevin um from nerd had at a, a reptile show. He was at this little tiny reptile show and he was, uh, had some cool stuff on his table, but he had this one little Borneo that he was labeled as a, um, hypo. And okay. I was looking at that thing all day, you know, and as I was there, cause I was really into bloods, you know, getting really into them then in time, but I was still had some carpet pythons and all. I had this whole clutch of jungle carpets and I said, ah, what the heck? Kevin wanted, like, I forget what he wanted for it, maybe $500 or $600 or something. So I had like 10 baby jungle carpets and I went up to him. I said, Kevin, would you want to make a trade? You know, do you have a you know marker for these things? And I'd love to work with that animal. He's like, yeah, sure. That sounds like a good deal. So I took it. And um, that was the ghost line that I had started. It was a wild caught little baby that came in. And Kevin, I guess, had been going through some of the Borneos that were coming through and this one looked unusual. So he plucked it out, you know, for, for market. And so that's how I wound up getting that animal and started the ghost line. And then I was bringing the ghost into the Borneo and, um, that took that project in a whole different direction, which I always congratulate Matt Minotola because he took the marbles. Nowadays, he's got them where I had envisioned them going, you know, and 
I'm so proud of him that he had gotten some animals from me and Mike Kasakis and some other people. And he started really concentrating on breeding those to where I wanted to take them, you know? So like mm-hmm. looking at that, I'm like, you know, so proud yeah. of him that he had brought them to that level. Cause that's what I was looking to do. But the, the ghost gene was just so cool and producing such cool things. I was like, wow, I got to get this into the marbles. And really I kind of bred what Matt took him to out of the, line that I had here in my mm-hmm. collection because I had bred so much ghost stuff into it, you know. Sure. Um, and that seemed to unlock a lot of different looks, um, the ghost gene with the marble gene. And once I started putting stripe stuff into that too, that started unlocking even more things. So I was chasing a lot of different paths um, of different looks of the different things. And um, being that it's not really genetic and it's a line thing, I was just throwing names on them, you know, which drove a lot of people crazy, but I didn't know how (laughs) else, you know, how else do you describe a certain look of an animal that you're breeding for a trait, um, you know, other than putting a label on it, you know, but people, you know, lost their minds because you're putting a label on something that's not really genetic. It's a look, you know? So, yeah, I was working with all that all the way, out, like I say, up until 2013 when I decided to kind of pull the plug on the whole project. And I was going to just take a step back um, from the hobby for a little bit because it just started getting so crazy. But, you know, my real passion is the animals themselves and not the morph. Mm-hmm. And I always say, you know, see, see the species through the morph. Um, and I had to remind myself of that. And I just wanted to stop chasing the morphs and the and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get some Boland's Python. So I'm going to try to unlock that code. And next thing I know, I have like, I don't know how many species I have right now. But, you know, I just I went back to my roots of having a lot of different animals, you know, after that. But um, the the bloods and short tails were definitely, you know, I spent, like I say, 25, 30 years just working with those animals and really, you know, took it as far as I think I could take it, you know, personally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so exciting. I I love talking this stuff because I obviously wasn't there and I am one of those people where I don't know names of other people's besides who is in my small circle. So getting to learn this stuff is just really great. So thank you for sharing this information. Yeah, no problem. I love Sarah. <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> I really, really appreciate there, it. Oh, there's a cat. <laughs> yeah, there's my cat again. <laughs> Here she is. All right. Um, um, if you could give advice to someone who was new in the hobby and with, with bloods and short tails, what would you say to them? Um, well, it seems like, I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I follow the King Snake and the Morph Market and all that kind of stuff. There was a time when, um, when um, uh, Robin and um, Chad from Pro Exotics and some other people were getting a lot of imported baby bloods in. And Chad and um, Robin did a great job on really establishing their little babies before they sold them um, to market, you know. But now um, it seems like, you know, there's a good amount of breeders breeding them and they don't, you know. So, like, my best advice would be to really search out a really good breeder and talk to them. Um, Don't waste their time. Make sure you're going to want to purchase something before you do reach out to them. But um, the best advice I could give them is is definitely um, reach out to a really good breeder, get the animal, it's going to be with you for a long time. Don't try rushing um, 
the taming and the handling and all of that with a blood python like you could get away with with some of the other species of animals that you may have worked with in the past. Give them their time to settle into your collection and really you get to know the animal before you start the interaction. They're going to be with you 15, 20, 25 years. So you got plenty of time. You don't need within the first few weeks of having that animal just to be all over, you know, stressing it out. And you're going to have a much better uh, relationship with a blood python for sure if you take things a lot slower than you can with some other animals. So I would say take it slow is probably the best advice in getting it from a very good breeder. So he will give you the information of how he's keeping it, um, yep. what he's feeding it, how he's feeding it. All those things really matter. And the, the better breeders will take the time to tell you all of those items and then take it slow with that animal. That's that's the best advice I could give you. Right. And if you have issues too, you know, the breeder is over the importer, so to speak. Um, they can troubleshoot with you. You know, I had that Absolutely. where... You know, I spent a good amount of money on an animal from Matt Turner, and then uh, it would just stopped eating. And I couldn't get to eat. I couldn't get to eat. I couldn't get to eat. And we went through all the different things, you know, and then Kara's really good about that too. Like, okay, what are you doing now? And, and how do you, how can we fix it? And even in, you know, honestly, even in the Facebook forum too, um, people ask and first thing, you know, the other April, come, that's what I call her, the other April, <laughs> she'll come in, you know, what are your temps? What is this? What is this? And we try to troubleshoot. So, um, well, yeah, the good, the good advice from a breeder though, is these animals definitely get imprinted and, and your line of animals are definitely used to the way you do things, you know, yes, and, absolutely. and, and somebody else can get it and they think they're doing the same thing. But if you talk back and forth, you'll figure out that you're doing something just a little bit different. Um, than the breeder was doing. And if he had that animal, he could have been raising it up. It was a whole back. He may have had it for a year before he sold it. And when you get it, that animal has a year of living with that person and the way they're doing it. And mm-hmm. you just got to really follow the thing and, and swallow your pride a little bit. Don't think that you know everything you know, you know, and, and, and ask questions and really understand what they're telling you and implement the same techniques to your animal and it will come around for sure, you know. Right. I agree. Um, what about people that want to get into breeding? They already have kept them and they want to take the next step with the animal. Um, what's your advice for, for someone like that? Uh, again, don't rush it. Um, definitely um, don't push your animals um, uh, being too young before you start or not a proper size and body weight. A lot of people throw these things together and then they have disastrous results and then the, the female doesn't respond rebound really well or anything because they're just trying to rush 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 and be the first one out with these new new look or new design or whatever is out there you know that's going to be the next big craze and they want to make a name for themselves and they're just pushing the animals like take your time with the animals get the weight on them get them the proper age and um you know make sure that they're good good healthy stock before you start breeding them Absolutely. And in future episodes, we will go over all of those details on what that healthy weight is, how long you should wait, what the feeding schedule should be and that type of thing. So we'll definitely get into that more. Um, But thank you so much, Keith, for for everything and all the knowledge that you gave me and all the listeners. Just thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, April. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited that you had me on as your first guest. I I like that. That's (laughs) awesome. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Awesome. So um, this will be up on Spotify and then 
I believe with Apple, with the Apple um, podcast app, when you're a new podcast, it kind of takes a while to get on an actual, um, uh, like a regular released schedule. So I will let you guys know when those are going to be released and I will set up links and stuff on Facebook. Um, you can find me on Instagram and all that kind of stuff too. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for everything. And, uh, that's, you know, second round of episode one now (laughs) is in the books. (laughs) So thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah, No problem. And April, I just want to put out there that any of your listeners, um, want to reach out to me, they can on Facebook, just, uh, just send me a friend request on Facebook, Keith to uh, Keith McPeak, and I'll uh, be happy to talk snakes with anybody at any time. Absolutely. And we'll put all your information in the show notes too. So that way they can just click the link and get to you right there. Fantastic. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening. Please feel free to give me a follow on Facebook and Instagram at Bloods by Design. Tag me in your blood python photos at Bloods by Design, hashtag strictly shorties, so I can share all the awesome animals you listeners have. And if you have any questions, people you want to hear from, or topics to discuss, you can email those to bloodsbydesign at gmail.com. And of course, this podcast is supported by the NPR Network. If you want to get a hold of any of the guys at the NPR Network, you can email them at info at moreliapythonradio.com. You can follow them on all the socials and, of course, subscribe to the NPR Network YouTube channel. They have a Patreon where you can support all the NPR podcasts, just like this one, as well as merch. And all of that can be found on their website, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next month for more Strictly Shorties.